Hey, good weekend to you. Welcome to Leading Edge. I'm Jerry Anderson. Good to have you along. So we had a primary election in Ohio. Leading Edge has been following this closely for weeks and months. And the national news outlets finally came around, put the big spotlight on the Buckeye State. And make no mistake, much of that interest had to do with one word, one person, Trump. So to help us sort through um, and break down what voters were saying, what it all may mean heading into the fall midterms that are oh so important. I want to welcome in Dr. Nicole Caleb Hughes, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Bowling Green State University. Dr. Hugh- Caleb Hughes, good to see you again. So how much sway does this former president still hold over his party's voters? Was that the question? And if so, what say you? I think he holds a little bit of sway still, but I think that he has been really strategic with his endorsement. So his endorsement for the Republican Senate nomination didn't come until pretty late in the game, given when he made other um, endorsements in other states' races. And so I think he kind of waited to see how the candidates were polling, who was polling ahead, and then probably who was going to be most competitive in a general election in November, and then made the decision. Okay, that's and what so, he said was who is who's who can you know, best chance of winning this thing yep. to hold the seat from a Republican point of view in the fall. Mm-hmm. But let's face it, uh, Vance was, I think, polling third and not really a close third. Are, are you suggesting that Vance could have won this without the, the Trump endorsement? It's hard to tell, right, because it's hard to, to kind of predict things that that we don't actually have any data on. Um, But I think it's possible because I think that the press surrounding the nomination was focused far less on candidate policies and far more on um, potential fistfights that broke out at various events and that kind of thing. And I think a lot of Republicans in the state of Ohio are looking ahead to see who is going to be able to keep that seat rather than an uncompetitive Republican running against a very competitive Democrat in November. Um, And talk about reach or coattails, as they refer to it in the political business Loudly pro-Trump candidates also finished second and fourth and fifth. Only Matt Dolan steered clear of Trump worship and having that lane all to himself finished no better than third. I guess note to other would-be candidates out there on the Republican side as to which line to toe. I think in a primary election, yes. So remember, in a primary election, you are playing to probably the most extreme of your base. You're not looking to appeal to a general election. And so I think the candidates that are that are um, in the primary, at least on the Republican side, for the most part, even if they're not enthusiastically pro-Trump, they're going to use the language to kind of to make themselves seem aligned with with Trump. I think we would see something a little bit different in November. I don't think you would see as heavy of an alignment with Trump in November. But again, November is far enough away and politics are kind of ever-changing, so it's we don't know what's going to happen between now and then. Is it possible, and the Democrats are saying, I hope so, I hope so, I hope so, is it possible that Dolan's supporters are in play, or are they post-primary saying, well, we're Republicans, we're still Republicans, we'll go with Republicans, we'll go with Vance, or did their attraction to Dolan not genuflecting to Trump indicate that maybe we do, maybe we won't go that way? I think it's going to be some of both. I think some will vote for whomever the Republican candidate is. Some may switch over to the Democratic side in the general election. But I think a lot of it is going to depend on both the campaigns that the candidates run in the state, but it's going to depend heavily on national politics. And as we've seen this week, 
Um, I think national politics got a lot more salient for a lot more people, um, particularly people in states that are dominated by Republicans. And so I think for some of those people, they may end up moving over to the Democratic side when they might not have kind of prior. You're, you're obviously referring to what we think is the advanced look, the draft look at what we think is going to be a Supreme Court uh, ruling largely uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, despite the fact that 55 to 60 percent of Americans have consistently said they favor keeping that in place. You think that is the kind of thing that will energize turnout. And if it's energizing turnout, it would tend to energize Democrats. Am I reaching? Um, I think you're right. And I think it would it might energize both. But I think in this instance, it's going to energize Democrats far more than Republicans. Um, let's talk the governor's race, because Mike DeWine and Donald Trump, I don't think they share a warm relationship. Even after DeWine co-chaired the former president's campaign in Ohio, very successful campaign in Ohio, and then the, Mr. Trump goes and casts about for someone to challenge DeWine. Um, yet DeWine, whose pandemic policies, let's face it, were more Cuomo than Trump, wins and wins comfortably. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that speaks to DeWine's experience and his longevity in politics. He knows how to campaign. He knows kind of what's necessary. But it presents a really interesting question, I think, for what challenging DeWine might look like and what it means for people to run to the far right of an already very conservative Republican. DeWine is a conservative Republican and he's been consistent over his political career. And the people who were challenging him were pretty darn far to the right of him. And so I think that's kind of an interesting tension between what maybe some of the party might want and what would fly in, an, in the statewide election. And it'll be interesting where the Republican base goes, because for a guy who has been elected everything in Columbus and Washington, D.C., representing Ohio, more Republican primary voters cast gubernatorial ballots for someone other than DeWine on Tuesday. I'm talking about Renacy and Blystone. Together, they got more votes than did Mike DeWine, which may, does that indicate some softening in his base? He needs work to do with his own base or will those people come around? Those people are going to come around because okay. their alternative will be a Democrat. Um, and so those people are going to, are, are definitely going to come around to DeWine. There may be a handful that don't. I think what it does signal is more kind of an interesting question about how the rules of voting kind of determine the candidates that we get. If we had a state that required a 50% plus one majority to get the nomination, we would end up in a runoff situation. Um, or if we were one of the states that used ranked choice voting, um, we might have a different outcome. And so I think DeWine is a really smart politician. He knows what he needed to get the nomination and to get it comfortably. And he did just that. The story of the Ohio primary may well have been written. I mean, the story may have been written right here in our area, staunchly. Pro-Trump candidate, non-politician J.R. Majewski turned aside two sitting GOP office holders to earn the Republican nod in the 9th Congressional District, Toledo's district. Think Marcy Kaptur. How did that happen and what does it say? Um, I think how that happened had a lot to do with the changing districts in this election. They're different than previous elections because of redistricting in the, the 2020 census. So part of it has to do with the fact that the people who are voting now for this district are different than they were last time. Um, part of that may just have to do with the campaign and it may have to do with the fact that Republican turnout was so strong. And I think it was strong in more extreme Republicans than the other two candidates. And the other two candidates spent a whole bunch of money bashing each other big time. 
and maybe didn't give um, Mr. Majewski his due in terms of his connection with voters. All right. So these people get elected. And, and, and as I said last week on the show, you know, the people are, are footing the bill of the small little things at the bottom of the commercials. And we don't know who they are. So when they get into the ever listen to us, Dr. Nicole Caleb Hughes, who's been researching that. And I think it's very interesting. I want to get into that when Leading Edge continues right after this. We're back on Leading Edge. She is Dr. Nicole Caleb Hughes, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, BGSU. I raised the question right before the break. We elect these people, and then do they just go off and do what? Do they ever listen to us? Well, Dr. Caleb Hughes has been researching that, and she's done so by digging deep. And I mean into dozens and dozens and dozens of school districts. I think they're email communications. And what did you find? What are people writing? And if so, what are they writing about? So what I looked at was how effective constituent requests to school boards were in terms of changing school board policy. So getting a response that changed school board policy. And I looked specifically at school district mask mandates because that was something that I had a feeling every district had a lot of communications on, Oh yeah. Um, but also something that affected every district. So it wasn't, it didn't have to do with levies or something that would only pop up in certain districts at certain times. Every district last year was trying to figure out, do we implement a mask mandate? If so, when, and kind of how? And for whom, for which, for which grades. And so I looked at, um, through public records requests, emails from constituents to school boards. And so I've got preliminary analysis done on, on this from the districts that participated. And, and I'm still getting data. So not everyone has turned, has gotten me their results yet. But it shows that school boards actually listen. Um, school boards actually do care what their constituents think, particularly if there's some sort of outside support for what, what the question is. So looking at mask mandates, for districts that had absolutely no COVID cases in their district or a very small increase in COVID at the beginning of the school year, it didn't matter how many people wanted a mask mandate, they didn't do it because they just didn't need to. For districts that had a ton of COVID in the district, like enough to shut the district down because there were no teachers, usually they did implement a mask mandate. For the majority of districts, which were kind of in the middle, we saw those districts implement a mask mandate when they had a lot of email communications. So those email communications actually made a difference for districts that were kind of in the middle, where they were going back and forth. They didn't sure didn't know if they had enough COVID cases, but if they had enough popular support, they actually listened. And we see them, the probability of those districts implementing a mask mandate being significantly higher. We know there's some districts and it's been covered in the news and you know this well, and maybe you read it in some of the emails, also got some, um, shall we say, spirited negative reaction from voters, viewers, parents out there. You tell me the, the, the tone and tenor of the communication also plays a role in all of this. Explain that. So it really does. What the data show is that the people requesting a mask mandate, by and large, were making more arguments about safety and they were generally more respectful. The people who were arguing against a mask mandate did so for a variety of reasons, including freedom, um, including government overreach. And those arguments were a little bit more hostile in tone, regardless of what the argument was. Once the, once the communications went really hostile or really disrespectful or outright threatening, they did not get a response. Okay, um, something to keep in mind. I'm going to I'll give those people a piece of my mind. And well, you may, and they can't throw it in the trash. It's a public communication. 
but don't expect that you're going to hear back from them in ways that you want to hear back from them. Did the, did you know, I have about a minute to go here, uh, Nikki, the, did the school district itself, and I'm thinking of, I don't know, the, the well-being of the school district play a role in all of this? It did. The districts that were far more likely to get a response um, and to see even more communications were districts that were designated by the state of Ohio as suburban low income or suburban high income and suburban very high income um, or suburban low poverty and very low poverty. And those districts were more likely to get more communications and to get a policy response from their school board, which suggests that districts that already have every advantage in the world are also going to have more of an advantage in terms of representation. That as a parent, your views are going to be better represented and more heard by these kind of small suburban districts where people have time and resources to communicate yeah. rather than other districts. Interesting stuff. Uh, thank you for sure. We just kind of scratched the surface there, but folks, your communications can be and will be heard and some tips on how to maybe make them be heard. Dr. Nicole Caleb Hughes, thanks for sharing your insights on thank a you. very interesting Tuesday. And now bring on the midterms. We'll talk again. And I'll be back on Leading Edge. We're back on Leading Edge. We continue to break down this week's uh, primary election, which was uh, so nationally followed and dissected uh, by the national press. Now, you probably find yourself saying, hey, wait, we didn't have any state representatives or senators to vote on on this ballot. And that's because the state's legislative districts submitted by a constitutionally mandated redistricting commission have been repeatedly ruled unconstitutional by the Ohio Supreme Court. Now, we think new districts will be the subject of a second primary, I don't know, say August or so, we think, but we don't know. Someone who does know at least a lot more than we do is Mia Lewis, Associate Director of Ohio Common Cause, which has championed the Fair Districts effort in Ohio. Fair Districts, as mandated and spelled out, by Ohio voters. Ms. Lewis, welcome. Uh, we're talking on Thursday. Commission met yesterday. No new maps were discussed. The independent maps were not submitted. And the majority members, from what I read, just seem to be throwing up their hands in futility. Is that about where we are? That's absolutely correct. Um, you know, the Democratic members of the commission urged them to go back to the independent, the work that the independent mappers had done um, and said, let's just finish up. It can be done in a matter of hours. Those maps were done transparently. They were compact. They were compliant. They were all the things that we wanted. And Ohioans got to see them being made. Um, and yet the commissioners um, rejected, the majority members of the commission rejected that and basically threw up their hands and said, um, the only maps that we can use are the ones, are the third set, um, which is what Secretary LaRose has instructed the boards of elections to already kind of program into mm. their um, machines. All right, let's go back to something you picked up on there. Because the independent maps that were drawn out there, the majority members, this is a 5-2 majority Republican commission, folks, majority members said, oh, look at those maps. No, they don't meet constitutional muster. They're just about securing partisan victories in some districts. And look at the way they chop up uh, cities. I think uh, Rob McCauley over here in Napoleon uh, said, look at Toledo chopped so many different ways. You take exception with their description of those maps. How so? Well, so when you look at the, those maps overall, yep. you see that they are constitutional. Now, what these commissioners are doing is saying, um, well, look where they drew this particular line. Let us 
clearly understand the difference between redistricting and gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is drawing district lines in order to create a map which overall favors or disfavors one political party over another. Um, whereas redistricting, of course, you have to make choices about where you draw lines. But when you draw the lines such that the total result of the whole map put together is representationally fair and doesn't actually favor one party over another, that's not gerrymandering. Uh, so what they did is they kind of said, well, we don't want to look at the whole map because the whole map is actually constitutional and fair. Let's look at this particular mm -hmm. instance. And, and that's a completely different thing. Let's go back to the set of the last set of maps uh, submitted by this commission uh, ruled unconstitutional. Although the state Supreme Court seemed to say you're on the road. You're not there yet. And especially in these toss up districts that they labeled Democrat leaning Supreme Court said, well, th those aren't statistically Democratic leaning. Do you help me understand how the partisan makeup of the state legislature would shape up under those maps? Right. So the maps that they have that are that they adopted, the third set of maps and the fourth set of map, which is almost identical. Right. The problem was um, they have these kind of razor thin margins on a whole bunch of Democratic districts. So they're they're saying, oh well, look, it's a it's an appropriate split. But when you look at it, there's about 20 um, districts that are nominally Democrat, but if there's even a tiny little you know, favorable way for Republicans, the Republicans could gain those extra 20 seats. But if there's a blowout year for um, Democrats and they do really, really well, they won't actually gain any seats at all because the Republican seats are all very, very secure. All right. Wow. Okay. I want to redo that one more time. A big Republican year, they could gain 20 seats. A big Democratic year, Gain no seats over what's submitted. Uh, exactly. We did vote in congressional primaries on Tuesday, and man, uh, the ninth district up our way, Toledo area, uh, really made some news. But those districts are the subject of a lawsuit themselves, aren't we? And we haven't talked as much about that. D didn't voting under this current map on Tuesday kind of solidify their being, their existence? Yes, it's a very, very tricky and unfortunate situation. What happened was um, the court struck down the first congressional map, and then the redistricting commission drew a second map. And the, the parties that had submitted lawsuits against the first map kind of hoped that that lawsuit would continue as one lawsuit, but mm. the court thought about it for a while. And then they said, we didn't retain jurisdiction. So you have to start again with a new lawsuit. They started again with a new lawsuit, but they lost a lot of time. And so that lawsuit against the, the second congressional map is in the middle of it's, it's in process. They're still in discovery. They're going to be, you know, it's going to be kind of rolling out over the next couple of months. And so unfortunately, we just voted on a congressional map that is under review by the Ohio Supreme Court and that could be struck down, that may well be struck down. What happens then? Honestly, I don't know. It's not completely and totally impossible that the court would say, okay, you voted on that primary, but those maps were unconstitutional. You have to go back and vote again in a different primary on a different map. Um, more likely, we use that map in 2022 and they have to draw a new map for 2024. This commission, the amazing uh, disappointment and to date failure that it is, knows that its worst case scenario based on another federal court panel is that um, that court later this month said apparently it will impose this redistricting commission's last submission 
<laughs> yes, one that the Supreme Court has thrown out, ruled unconstitutional. So from a partisan point of view, it's really in their interest to stall and play stall ball and just run the clock out, isn't it? Yes, it is. And they they've honestly they have they're master at that game. The whole they've been stalling and running out the clock since August, September, October, November, December. You know, here we are in May and they're still doing it. And, you know, what the federal court did essentially was say, um, and I'm quoting from somebody else here. They said, if you're a parent and you say, go clean your room by seven o'clock. And if you don't have it cleaned by seven o'clock, I'll give you cookies. It it do doesn't make any sense. They basically said, if you run out the clock and you don't do anything, I'll reward you by giving you, allowing you to use the maps that you want to use anyway. Uh. So it's not really a punishment. Um, but I will say that um, Leader Russo yesterday made a very good point. Well, first of all, they are still under order of the Ohio Supreme Court until tomorrow morning, until Friday morning, the sixth, to actually yep. draw a map. And they're also under a court order by the federal court until May 28th to try to draw a different map. You know, they the federal court did say, if you fail, we'll impose the ones that you already adopted. But they did say you have to try to draw a better map by yeah. May 28th. So seems like they should do that. Yeah, it seems like it should do it from everywhere from the Constitution to another federal panel. But uh, uh, I, we're not holding our breath. But this is a fluid story. And since elections were so much in the forefront and we're seeing from Washington to Columbus, the effect elections have consequences, people and uh, fair districts have consequences as well. Mia Lewis, um, Associate Director of Common Cause. Always good. Uh, thanks for keeping us updated on this most important topic. And uh, good luck to you. Thank you. Thanks, Mia Lewis. And we'll be back on Leading Edge. I want to thank my guests. I want to thank you for watching. See you next week on Leading Edge.